Some of you are old enough to remember the year 1948. Some of us were just young puppies at the time. But in 1948, Harry S. Truman ran for re-election as the 33rd president of the United States. It was actually his first time to run as president because he had become president when Franklin Delano Roosevelt died 83 days into his fourth term. Truman, some of you historians may remember, was running against Thomas Dewey, and every public opinion poll predicted that Dewey would win in a landslide. Newsweek magazine polled 50 top political experts throughout the country, and they gave Dewey 366 electoral votes. That's 100 more than he needed to win. The Fort Lauderdale Daily News flatly announced that Dewey would get at least 62% of the vote. Life magazine featured a full-page picture of Dewey with the caption, here's the new president traveling by ferry boat across the broad waters of San Francisco Bay. The Kiplinger letter described the economic policies of the new Dewey administration. And the Manchester Guardian's election reported, Harry Truman, study of a failure. The Chicago Tribune had already published their banner headline, Dewey defeats Truman. On election night, Dewey was in New York. He was working on the final draft of his acceptance speech as president. Where was Harry Truman? He was in Excelsior Springs, Missouri, taking a Turkish bath, eating a ham sandwich, drinking a glass of milk, and listening to the election returns. He writes later, at 6 o'clock, I was defeated. At 10 o'clock, I was defeated. At midnight, I heard the report that I was 1,200,000 votes ahead, but would still undoubtedly lose. Truman decided to go to bed, but he was awakened at 4 a.m. by a Secret Service agent who told him that even though he was ahead now by 2 million votes, no one could see how he could ever become elected president. Despite all the commentators, all the newspapers, all the polls that said he didn't even have the remotest chance of winning, Harry S. Truman was still elected, the 33rd president. What looked like sure defeat turned into a great victory. You know, the same is true of Jesus' victory on Calvary. What many people viewed when they viewed what transpired on that not-so-good Friday, nearly 2,000 years ago, all the opinion polls were saying that Jesus was done. Jesus was defeated. He had lost, and the Jewish leaders had won. While Jesus was hanging on the cross, his opponents were probably holding their victory parties already, and they were writing headlines for the morning edition of the Jerusalem Gazette, Jesus defeated at Calvary. See, that signal that seemed to be coming through the dense fog of those events was that it was finished. When Jesus said that, it is finished, that's exactly what he meant, they said. It was over. Jesus had lost. The fog and the darkness that hovered over Jerusalem and over the world on that Friday was dark. It was thick, and it looked like anything but a victory. I want you to think about that night. It began on a, in a lonely garden. Jesus had been in an upper room with the eleven. Judas had already left to do his deed of betrayal. 
And right before Jesus left with them to head towards the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus said in John chapter 14 that the prince of the world, that Satan, was coming for Jesus, coming to attack our Lord with all he had. And with that, Jesus walked and sang a hymn as they headed to the Garden of Gethsemane on the Mount of Olives. Interestingly enough, Jesus continued to teach his disciples all along the way. He taught them about the vine and the branches, about how they had to remain in him. He warned them that the people who do not remain in him are like a branch that's cut off and thrown into the fire. Along the way, Jesus taught them about how they would be hated because of him. But he also told them that he was going to send the comforter that would soon be with them. After climbing the Mount of Olives, they came to the garden. And there Jesus began to battle the evil one. I want you to remember that after Jesus was tempted by Satan at the very beginning of his ministry, there's a very interesting little line. We know that Satan attacked Jesus in the wilderness, but he failed. Yet Luke 4.13 says, When the devil had finished all this tempting of Jesus, he left him until an opportune time. This seemed to Satan as the opportune time. You know, as I think about this, it is only fitting that this battle takes place here. After all, it's in a garden that man first gave in to the devil and sinned and disobeyed God. And now, thousands of years later, in another garden, Jesus fights that ultimate battle with Satan, but this time the Satan, the serpent, would be crushed as Jesus chooses to be obedient, even to the point of death. When Jesus entered the garden, he leaves the eleven about a stone's throw away, takes a couple of disciples a little closer, and he says, watch with me for an hour. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow. Stay here, pray, watch with me. Scripture tells us that Jesus fell to his knees and prayed to his Father. He was so overcome that he actually threw himself face down on the ground and prayed with such intensity that it said great drops of blood like sweat fell from his head. At that point, Jesus knew the cup he must drink of, the cup of God's wrath and God's judgment of sin, the cup that when he drank it would for a time separate him from his own father. And as Jesus hung there on that cross, bearing the sins of the entire world, it was as if his father turned his back on him. And when the dark cloud hovered over the garden, when Jesus was praying, in deep, deep sorrow, when the disciples fell asleep just a few feet away from Jesus, unable to be any support to him, when Judas comes and gives him that kiss on the cheek, the kiss of betrayal, and when the soldiers come and they bind him up and take him away, and when the disciples flee into the Judean night, when all of this happened, it looked like anything but victory. The dark force of this world thought victory would soon be theirs. But it was only Friday, and Sunday was coming. When Peter stood later warming his hands in the fire, Peter, the one who had spoken such great words of confidence, Lord, if everybody else runs away, not me. Peter, who heard that rooster crow. Peter, who denied ever even knowing Jesus. When one of Jesus' strongest followers denied him, it did not look like victory. But that was Friday. 
and Sunday was coming. Then came the mocking and the beatings, the temple guards putting a blindfold on Jesus, and then each one of them took turns hitting Jesus in the face with their fists, the blood pouring out of his nose and out of his mouth. And as they hit Jesus, they mocked him. They said, come on, Jesus, tell us who hit us, hit you. But that was Friday. Sunday was coming. Later, they would tie Jesus to that Roman centurion post. They would stretch the skin on his back tight. And then 39 times, a Roman soldier with a scourge would rip across the back of Jesus, tearing great chunks of skin and flesh and muscle. Roman soldiers knew how to do this. They were very proficient at bringing a man intense pain and at the same time keeping him just about that close to death so that he would suffer even longer. And as Jesus hung there, hands bound, blood pouring from his body, wincing in pain, at this moment the Romans and the Jews may have thought that they had won. But that was Friday, and Sunday was coming. And when the crowd who less than a week ago shouted, Hosanna to the Son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, when Jesus rode into Jerusalem triumphantly, when those same people said, when Pilate asked him, what shall we do with the one you call the King of the Jews, when they shouted, crucify him, it didn't look like victory. But then again, it was only Friday, and Sunday was coming. As they led Jesus, carrying his cross through the streets of Jerusalem, up and down those winding dirt roads, the soldiers purposely took the longest route up to Mount Calvary. They did it so that everybody could see what happens to a person who dare defies Rome. You have to remember also that this was during the Passover, and so millions of people had flocked to Jerusalem. You might also remember that Roman law said that if on the way to the crucifixion, if anyone, if just one person would stand up and say this man is innocent, that funeral procession would have stopped. When Jesus walked by people that he may have healed, and they each in turn looked away and denied Jesus, it did not look much like victory. But that was Friday, and Sunday was coming. And then when Jesus, our Lord and Savior, God in the flesh, when Jesus was stripped naked and nailed to the cross with every breath pushing up on those spikes in his feet, pulling up on those spikes in his wrist and scraping his exposed back against that rugged cross of wood, as hundreds of people gathered around him and mocked him and laughed at him and insulted him, as Jesus hung there somewhere between heaven and earth, blood pouring out of his wounds, blood streaming down his face and cheeks, Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When Jesus raised up and breathed his last and said, Tetelestai, it is finished, as he hung his head and as he died, as the sky turned black and as the dark clouds swallowed up Jerusalem, it looked like anything but victory. I'm sure that on that dark Friday night, parties were being thrown in Jerusalem by the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They were celebrating already the death of Jesus. But it was only Friday, and Sunday was coming. 
You may have looked like defeat, but the fog was lifting and victory was on its way. Jesus, with great power, was just about ready to burst forth from the grave. Sunday. Sunday was coming. And we know what happened on Sunday. He rose. On Easter, the tomb is empty. The stone is rolled away, not so Jesus could get out, but so that we could see in. Jesus is alive. Do you believe this? Do you believe it? Do you rejoice in it? Are you thankful that you serve a risen Savior, a Savior who is in the world still today? Do you know that He is still with us no matter what other people might say? When I see Jesus stretched out on that cross, I also see His hands of mercy. Do you see that? I mean, can you hear Jesus' voice of cheer? Are you thankful that through the resurrection, Jesus tore away the bars of death and sin that held us captive for so long? What on Friday looked like a terrible defeat turned out to be the greatest victory of all times. The resurrection was the moment that the world had been waiting for. It was the moment that the world needed so desperately. The resurrection is why Jesus came to this earth, and it's because of his resurrection that we who are in him can look forward to the day when he comes again. And you know something else? Jesus did not rise from the dead so that you and I and the rest of this world could remain the same. He did not come into this world to die and rise again for us to just go on like it's just another day. Rather, he came, as Scripture says, to transform us, to change us. I just want to mention four ways he wants to transform you. Very quickly, I mean, the resurrection transforms us from unbelief to belief. The resurrection transforms us from death to life. The resurrection transforms us from fear to courage. The resurrection transforms us from despair to hope. But friends, you know, if you just look at the dark clouds of life, it is sometimes very easy to feel defeated. If you only look at the dark side of life, it is sometimes easy to lose hope. It is sometimes easy to be afraid, to start our own walk away from our city of hopes and dreams, every step taking us further away from Christ and the cross. But if you are here tonight and you count yourself as a Christian, if you count yourself as a Christ follower, when those dark clouds of this life come, and they will, remember this, the sun is still behind those clouds and it will shine again. After the rain, always comes a rainbow. Always remember, it may feel like Friday, but Sunday's on the way.